right. Welcome, Midwestern Marks viewer. I am Kala, and I'm joined by Carlos and Eddie. And hello, we are... Everyone. Hello. Um, and we're joined by Ramiro, Ramiro Sebastian Funes, um, who's a Honduran communist content creator based out of L.A., um, he is the producer and director of Nicaragua Against Empire, a documentary series highlighting Nicaraguan resistance to Western imperialism. Welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate being on your channel. I'm a big fan of your work and I support the work that y'all are doing, dispelling the myths of imperialism, of capitalism, and I hope to do the same today in focusing on Honduras and Nicaragua. Um, well, great. Let's jump right in. I think um, focusing in on Nicaragua first, um, my first question is in relation to the 2018 coup. Um, what shadow is it casting over the current election? Um, is there anticipation of further interference? Um, what tactics are they thinking about using? That sort of stuff. So for, just for some background, leading up to the 2018 coup in Nicaragua, this is during the second stage of the Sandinista Revolution. The first stage of the Sandinista Revolution took place from 1979 to 1989 as a result of the victory of the armed struggle, La Revolución Popular Sandinista. And between 1990 to 2006, there were a series of neoliberal governments that rolled back all the progressive gains made under the Sandinista Revolution, the first stage. And so the second stage of the Sandinista Revolution took place, is taking place from 2006 to the present, again under President Daniel Ortega, Compañera Rosario Murillo, the longest serving uh, woman vice president who was also a guerrilla fighter and a poet and so many other things, a communist. And Daniel and Rosario have embarked on a path of socialism of the 21st century, collaborating with Cuba, Venezuela, with Bolivia, with China, Russia. And a lot of gains were made from 2006 until 2017. Up until 2017, Nicaragua was ranked one of the countries with the highest in indices of happiness. It was one of the happiest countries in the world. Even And there was all these articles saying, like, how can a country that's so quote unquote poor be so happy well it's because people have healthcare education housing it's not fancy it's not the best but everyone has what they need Nicaragua in 2017 had the lowest homicide rate in the Americas and in Central America this is a big deal because that same year Honduras neighboring Honduras where my family which we'll talk about later on had the highest crime rate in the world so in the years leading up to the 2018 coup that context is important because it's not like Nicaragua was this crazy place where violence was taking place and drug violence and gangs and, and poverty. There was the, the biggest gains in the economy, the Nicaraguan economy, along with Bolivia at that time as well, was making some of the biggest strides in GDP growth and lifting millions of people out of poverty. So the context of that 2018 coup was one of socialist construction and development. What happens is that in 2018 in April, you have the IMF and the World Bank pushing Ortega and the Sandinistas to implement neoliberal economic reforms, especially targeting the elderly, targeting uh, lifting the age of retirement. So it makes it harder for people to retire earlier on. Daniel says, I don't want to do that. And so instead, I'm going to raise some of the taxes on the wealthy, the private sector in the country. 
uh, there's this one industry group in particular called GOSET, which is like the council of the private, quote unquote, private sector, the entrepreneurs. So they basically, at that moment in 2018 in April, they began doing a social media blitz campaign. All these bot accounts that had been dormant for years that were just random Nicaragua culture pages, like things Nicaraguans say or travel in Nicaragua night over day, immediately began posting stuff like, Daniel is a dictator, you know, have the U.S. invade our country, uh, SOS Nicaragua. So it had been a, a very coordinated campaign for many years during the some of the most economically stable and prosperous times in Nicaragua. The private sector said that Ortega and the Sandinistas were cracking down on, on freedom and business. And so they launched these protests. The majority of the foot soldiers were these petty bourgeois college kids from the private schools in Nicaragua. If anybody has ever been to Latin America, you'll know a difference between the, the public school, working class kids and the private school. I mean, it's kind of the same thing in, in the States as well. You have like the kind of bougie private school kids who are, they think they're better than everybody else. And they're, they're arrogant and they're usually aligned with neoliberalism and the US. So they launched this SOS Nicaragua coup attempt hundreds of people died and it's disgusting because as i'm reading all the news articles about the nicaragua election today all of the news articles are blaming the deaths on ortega and, and the sandinistas they're all saying like whose crackdown led to the deaths of over 300 people it's like wait a second if you look at the investigations the the cruz roja internacional the the nicaraguan ministry of justice most of those who were killed were sandinistas right most of those people who were murdered and we're talking not just any sort of death. We're talking about people's heads cut off, people being burnt alive, women being raped, people being thrown into a house and set on fire. What they were doing, the right wingers, the contras, is that they were going around and tagging each house with the red and black to signify that Sandinista families live here and then they would burn the house. So a lot of really crazy stuff was going on. Very violent coup. And again, this was branded as a hipster, you know, pro-democracy protest uprising against a dictatorship and you had all the woke people on social media and the Nicaraguan diaspora come out and try to say stuff like, you know, save my country, my country's dying, like my country's under attack, please help us. And it's something that is emblematic of the new method of imperialism, which is attacking the left from the left, which is NGO industrial complex, the color revolutions, the synthetic left. And those all came together in 2018 in Nicaragua. And so after 2018, immediately within a few days there's a lot of violence but daniel ortega told the people look we do not want bloodshed i live through bloodshed he's somebody as a guerrilla fighter who was tortured for many years he was in prison he was in jail for years and they would torture him every single day in prison so he's somebody who knows what violence is his whole family is murdered by the contras and, and the somosa guard so he's seen that he's like i don't want any more bloodshed we know the sandinistas if i were to give them the green light it, within a matter of minutes, the counter-revolutionaries would be done away with, the situation would be over. But guess what? The headlines would be Sandinista bloodshed massacre in Nicaragua. We need to send in NATO. They'll do you know, what they did to Gaddafi and end of story. So he's very tactical. He's very smart and he understands. And just like in, in Venezuela as well, and also just like in Cuba with Miguel Diaz-Canel, shout out to President uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who when the uh, Patria, quote-unquote Patria Vida protest came out, He's like, let them go out, let them make them fool themselves. Let's go and talk to them. And they have, where are they now? 
there's nothing going, you know, they, they, they have nothing to back up. They just want to tear down the country. They have nothing to offer to the people. That's exactly what happened in Nicaragua. And so after that, from 2018 to the present, Nicaragua has still been hit very hard. The protests, you know, those uh, saboteurs, they left the country, a lot of them, some to Costa Rica, some to Honduras, some to the U.S., to Miami in particular. And one of the biggest challenges has been sanctions. Sanctions, just a few days ago, Congress passed the Renacer Act, which is doubling down on sanctions, tightening the grip on Nicaragua's economy. Two hurricanes struck Nicaragua in 2020, November, category four hurricane and category five hurricanes, Eta and Iota, in the same town in the Caribbean coastline, the Misquito community, Afro-Indigenous community in the coast that I visited. And you can see it in my documentary, Nicaragua Gets Empire. So two hurricanes struck, climate change, capitalism, everything is being thrown at this small, impoverished global South country. And yet the people are still with Daniel, the people are still with the Sandinista front. And just goes to show you how much amazing great things have been done there because of socialism for the 21st century, because of a revolutionary democracy that benefits the people. You mentioned a few important things there. Um, uh, one of the questions, uh, those, uh, those bot accounts, was that promoted by CLA, CLG uh, strategies or CL, CLS strategies? Because uh, they did similar things. They're the ones behind it in, in Bolivia and in Venezuela. Most definitely. That's CLG strategies and several other intelligence agencies based out of Miami. There's actually a whole cybersecurity, cybersecurity in quotations, industry in Miami of all these exiles from Latin American countries, from Cuba, from Bolivia, from Nicaragua, from Venezuela. And their job is to create these fake bot accounts to make it seem like there's this mass campaign of opposition to whatever government is in place. They did this in Bolivia against Evo Morales. All these fake bot accounts of like two followers all of a sudden were tweeting out these pictures that were not even from Bolivia. Same thing was happening in Nicaragua. They were posting photos in Nicaragua of police and National Guard beating up and detaining people in Honduras and saying that this was happening in Nicaragua and accusing the Sandinista government of this. And of course, so many people on the quote unquote left fell for this. Also the same thing they were doing, using uh, weaponizing identity reductionism or identity politics and saying that the Sandinista government was massacring Miskitu indigenous peoples on the coast. And that's part of the sanctions that are going on now with the Nacer, the beef, uh, the beef ban from Nicaragua because Nicaragua exports a lot of beef because it's uh, GMO free, organic, everything in Nicaragua is fresh and no GMOs or Monsanto's allowed there. So that there's a, a big demand for the beef and, and, and fruits and vegetables from there. And they're saying that this beef is produced in areas where there's genocide taking place, al allegedly. And I went to that area, I've interviewed people, they couldn't be happier, they're being promoted by the Sandinista government and it's just complete nonsense. So yeah, the, uh, CLG strategies and the crazy part about that is that not only are they propping up fake Twitter bots and accounts and saying that they're real opposition people, they're also censoring real Sandinista people, real Sandinista youth activists who are real human beings. I met them. I, I had a stream a few days ago with my compañero Camilo, who is a, a, a communist in, in Nicaragua, who does a lot of great blogs, uh, Red Revolución and Barricada and all these uh, Sandinista outlets. And they were saying that he's a bot, that he doesn't exist, that, that he's not a real person. And just the complete inversion. So it, 
again, it's something that is so dark. I mean, like, if we wanted to even bring this to a, a biblical level or whatever, like, this is, like, complete evil. Like, it's completely inverting reality. It's calling you the evil one when you're trying to do good and, and the person who's evil is calling themselves good. So it's something that's really insane. Yeah, and, you know, not to compare, uh, compare like, what we've been through to the the struggle of the revolutionaries but you know during sos cuba obviously we were one of the first accounts to come out and say this is state department manufactured this is not you know coming from the the mass of the people of cuba and my tiktok account with you know a couple hundred thousand followers was shut down for the entirety of the sos cuba protests you know as these bot accounts um as, as it's now been proven that these bot accounts uh, created in Miami were spreading all this anti anti Cuba propaganda, anti government propaganda, they were shutting down the the loudest and largest accounts, you know, um, telling the truth about the protests. And it's infuriating. You know, I had, you know, someone accused me of throwing a tantrum about it, but I was enraged, you know, because as you said, it's a complete inversion of reality and it's an inversion of reality. Um, which allows the U.S. empire to, to you know, do these horrific things and, and hold this country in a state of uh, uh, poverty or, or try and keep them from developing. Most definitely. And it's something that you should rightfully be upset about because I think people undervalue how much work actually goes into content creation. I'm sure y'all night and day, every day are working on thinking about where you're going to do, produce, and that's labor that's being produced. If you're a a Marxist, if you're a cap, uh, anti-capitalist, you have to understand that there's labor that, especially when you're producing things that go against the narrative, it's not trendy to defend anti-imperialist countries from color revolutions, right? If I wanted to be trendy, I'd go and start some shitty food blog and, and just, you know, go travel places with zero political messaging. But y'all are actually doing something that is challenging the empire. And when you have that big of a following and an influence, people are going to start noticing you. People are going to start following you, trying to defame you. And that's indeed the campaign. The campaign is to shut down people who are speaking the truth in defense of these countries and to create fake accounts out of thin air and make it seem that there's some huge opposition to XYZ anti-imperialist leader. And it's literally what inventing, there's this book, I think it's uh, by, I'm not sure if it's Parenti, I think it's Parenti, uh, Inventing Reality. And that's literally what they're doing, but on a whole nother level. Like this is like inventing reality when Parenti wrote it was like, you know, writing headlines a certain way, writing a certain paragraph. They're literally creating AI bots and all this other crap that I don't even know how it works, but they're literally creating it. And now with the metaverse, that's the crazy part about it is that hundreds of Sandinista accounts were deleted the same day that Zuckerberg announced the metaverse. So now they're going to create this whole new alternate reality where they can dominate all the rules and the spaces and information. So inventing reality is going to take a whole new meaning in the next few years. Yeah, it's such a display of power to simultaneously fund bots and pass them off as real activists against whatever leftist uh, government. And then at the same time be suspending journalists and, you know, uh, activists accounts. I, I think it was Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I was reading about them. Um, it, it is, it's the power to create reality, but it, it feels like um, 
just a real flex of power. Like, look at what we can do and you won't catch us. Um, it's quite sinister, um, but we have to just keep fighting. And we did get our TikTok back eventually. And maybe these people will, once they can no longer assist um, in the elections, they may get their accounts back as well until the next one rolls around. Um, but it's an old tactic that I think is just widening as uh, the technological net widens and they exert more and more control. I think your uh, gesture to the metaverse makes a lot of sense. We will see as that develops. So as far as far as today, today um, is, is quite literally the uh, the elections in, in Nicaragua. So um, we, we mentioned some of the suppression of a few journalists and, 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 and bloggers uh, through Facebook. I saw Facebook, I, I don't know if I've seen uh, through other platforms as well, but I imagine so. Uh, but what what other tactics besides uh, that have we seen in terms of trying to uh, manipulate the narrative of the of the elections today? And um, what can we expect uh, in the next couple of days after what is going to be a very likely Sandinista victory? So there are two ways in which they're trying to manipulate the election. One is physically in IRL in the real world. There have been several accounts of people, solidarity activists from the US, the UK, trying to fly to Nicaragua who have not been allowed. Like my friend Caleb, who, who just made it today, uh, yesterday, they were, the airline was trying to say like, oh no, uh, the government said you are not allowed to come in, this and that. And he's like, yo, I'm on the phone with them right now. And, and then they were able to go. There was another activist. I just literally, as as we came on the stream now, I had an email that another activist from the UK who was detained, uh, this guy, his name is um, Steve Sweeney, was detained on his way to Nicaragua, the only British journalist traveling to cover this election on the ground. A lot of other people from the US as well have been detained because the thing about Nicaragua is that it's not like, other major Latin American countries, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Brazil, where there's several international airports where there are many ways to enter the country. There's only a few ways to get in, similar to like Cuba or similar to Venezuela as well. So they're literally creating a chokehold on who can come in and out, these multinational airlines. And that's one of the challenges, right? That there's still, there's no like Aeroflot, right? There's no like Sandinista Airlines. I wish there was. That would be that would be lit as hell. But they're still dependent on these multinational airline companies that work at the behest of international capital, Avianca, Aero Mexico, American Airlines, and so they're able to control who comes in and out. So that's one thing. They're literally preventing people from entering the country on COVID technicalities, saying that they don't have the right paperwork, this or that. So it's crazy. Like people have been already stuck in the team. So that's in the real world. The other thing is that in the real world is obviously the sanctions that days before the election, they already made up their mind, right? The, the Congress passed it in said Act a few days ago, days before the election even happened. They didn't, they didn't even wait for the results to come out. And they're already saying, oh, this is because of dictatorship. This is because of the lack of democracy. Dude, the elections are like in, on Sunday. They haven't even happened yet. How have you already made up your mind? And by the way, the same people in the so-called progressive left of the Democratic Party, like Ro Khan and all these other people, the fraud squad, they all voted for that. They all supported they, A lot of these people supported that. So it just goes to show you the complicity between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to imperialism. So that's right. One another thing in real life. 
in terms of the digital world, the metaverse, we can uh, we can call it. You, we've we've been seeing these fake accounts, these fake hack troll trolling accounts that have been being propped up by social media. We know that the Facebook papers and Twitter files and all this stuff that's come out has shown that things that have a, a negative reaction or angry have gotten more attention and, or push. And so that has happened as well in the case of Nicaragua, that people who will post angry stuff against the government, because the stuff the scientists are posting is not like angry, it's not upset. They're like, yo, we love our country. We're going to elections. Like, let's build peace in Nicaragua. But that doesn't do pretty well on Twitter or, or, or social media, right? They want the angry stuff. They want the really divisive stuff. And they've been propping that up, these random college kids who say something bad about Daniel Ortega, and that gets pushed up, right? Uh, another thing has been this, obviously, the censorship against these Sandinista accounts. Like, every, all these accounts got wiped out. I know these people, I met them. They're not bots, they're real people. They're people, campesinos, they're women, they're young people like us. Like, like imagine one day, right? Like, you're building Middle Western Marks that has this huge following. You log in one day, it's gone. Just like that. That's what happened to them, you know, with accounts with just as big of followings, just as big of reach, popular popularity, people love the content and just wiped off for no reason. And the next day people will completely forget about it. So it's some really crazy stuff that's going on. Um, in, in relationship to that, and I, this might uh, be uh, a good sideline question before we hop into Honduras, but um, we're, we're almost at the behest of capital, even in, in the mean through which we share our revolutionary content, um, as you mentioned, uh, with censorship and suppression. Um, what what do you think we can do in order to sort of work around that? Um, or have there been any attempts by any revolutionary governments to create their own sort of uh, social media platforms that allow for uh, maybe not the same scope of people uh, in there as, as, you know, something like Twitter or Facebook would have, but um, at least something that revolutionaries can trust is not going to get, you know, just shut down as soon as their revolutionary efforts make it so that they can substantially oppose uh, their government, their system or, or capital in their country. One thing that the Bolsheviks spoke about during the Russian revolution was the importance of dual power, of building workers' councils, of building an alternate state that paralleled the provisional government under Kerensky, under, after the Tsar fell and they had this liberal, quote unquote, liberal democratic government, the Soviets, the Soviet Union of Soviets was established as a counterweight, uh, as a, a form of dual power to combat this bourgeois electoral process that was being set up by the, by the imperialists. And in the 21st century, I think that's something that we need to do as well in the socialist, communist, anti-imperialist camp. We need to get off of the dependence on the holy trinity, as I like to call it, Facebook, Twitter, and IG. And now we can add a uh, TikTok to the, the holy quadrant or whatever it is called. And it's something that is super important because as long as these remain our primary streams of information, of putting information out there, of broadcasting, they're always going to use that as leverage, as key infrastructure, because that is infrastructure. If you think about it, it's like a road or a highway. That's how we're communicating right now, like Zoom or YouTube or whatever. Like this is a, a means of, of human interaction, social intercourse. So we need to build alternate roads and paths of that. I think to be honest with you, it's something that within the anti-imperialist camp 
has been a, a big challenge. I think Russia probably has done somewhat of a, a good job of that um, in terms of, I think there's like the site called Trovo or something, or like there's these other Zoom-like or Facebook-like. China obviously has some great uh, alternatives as well. In Latin America and the Caribbean, I would say it's not that uh, popular yet or it hasn't been the case yet. I would love to see some sort of leftist Latin American social media network created that is like that. But I think, again, this comes back to not uh, a, because of will, not because of a lack of wanting to, but because of economic challenges, the sanctions. Th these are things that are top on the list. Like, if you listen to what Daniel Ortega says, what Nicolas Maduro says, what Miguel, Miguel Diaz-Canel says, their stuff is brilliant. They're talking about completely bypassing Silicon Valley, democratizing media space and creating alternatives not just in social media, but also currencies uh, of socialist cryptocurrencies. But that stuff is not possible as long as sanctions are in place, this stranglehold. And so those of us in the Imperial Court in the US, as we have a, a unique position that we're like behind the, we're, it's like we're at a restaurant and some crazy huge guys like choking somebody and we're like behind that guy, like we can pull his hands out of the person that he's choking, we're in that position. You know, and, and that's kind of our job. And by doing that, we're giving, literally giving them breathing space to invest money into creating uh, an alternative to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter. So it's definitely something that they want to do. It's just something they haven't been able to do. That's a, a really nice metaphor. I thought you were going to say something else. Uh, I, I think you went pretty nice with the remove the hands. <laughs> <laughs> or just stab him in the back. Yeah, stab just him on the off head. His head. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, to hop into uh, uh, Honduras, because we have some, an, an election coming up in Honduras, November 29th, and there's some interesting developments that haven't really been hitting even the most leftist media sites um, with the uh, the prospects of a potential Xiomara Castro victory. But a, a little bit of background for, for our viewers. Um, we have in 2006, the election of Manuel Zelaya, who comes in through a, a liberal party, I believe, and he ends up for the next three years basically implementing a program of 21st century socialism or something quite similar to it. Uh, he gets cooed out in, in, in 2009 and uh, Honduras ends up really going down a, a really bad uh, rabbit hole because of it. So can you, can you speak a little bit about the conditions of Honduras before uh, Manuel Celaya, some of the improvements that he brought about and how has Honduras been after uh, the coup, while also maybe trying to connect it to your experience as an Honduran. So just for some background as well, I was deeply involved. Actually, the coup in Honduras was something that brought me to socialism and communism in 2009 when the coup happened uh, in June. It's something that really awoke in my spirit because this is a time when this is even before Occupy Wall Street. And this is the height of Hugo Chavez when he was still healthy and in his prime. And I remember so many great things that were happening in Honduras under Manuel Zelaya. Manuel Zelaya is somebody who wasn't even outwardly left in the beginning. He's somebody, again, who comes from the Liberal Party, as you mentioned. He's somebody who actually comes from a more petty bourgeois family background. His family is a family of cattle ranchers. Manuel Zelaya, however, is somebody who was deeply influenced by the progressive left in Latin America and the Caribbean. He became president around the same time that Daniel Ortega became president again in Nicaragua. And they wanted to revive commerce and trade between Honduras and Nicaragua. 
uh, under socialism and ALBA. And it's interesting because it's Honduras is a country that similar to in, in South America, how we have uh, Venezuela and Colombia, where you have Venezuela as like this anti-imperialist revolutionary country that had this revolution at Colombia because of its geopolitical position was very strategic for the U.S. imperialists and has a tightest grip there because it also connects to Panama, to Ecuador, to Venezuela. Honduras plays a very similar role in Central America because Honduras borders Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua. It's right next to Belize. You have the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So historically, and that's where the Contras are trained. My family, my dad is from the place where the Contras were trained right on the border of Nicaragua. We used to go drive into Nicaragua. It was like a 15, 20 minute drive right across the border. So my family, my dad would tell me all these stories of how in the 80s, the Contras would go into their town. They would like do coke and do heroin and, and start gunfights with people. They would just start shooting guns like in the middle of the streets, terrorizing people. They would go to the college campuses. And at that time, if you were reading Marx or Lenin, they would kill you right on the spot. They were right wing. They were like something like I would compare it to ISIS, right? They were like fascist criminals backed by the U.S. and involved in the drug trade, hands down. That 90% of drugs that enters the U.S. goes through Honduras. If you look at a map of the drug trade, it literally swerves around Nicaragua, like completely swerves. And it goes straight into Honduras, straight into Mexico, and then into the U.S. So it's very central. There's a lot of dark forces. It's not just also like properly the State Department and all that. We're talking about the multinational drug cartel industry that is very invested in keeping Honduras a right-wing narco military dictatorship. There was revealed uh, papers during the trial of El Chapo, El Chapo Guzman from Mexico, the Mexican drug lord. He's, he financed the, the campaign of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's the president now of Honduras, the right-wing national party. So all the things that they said about Nicolas Maduro being a, a drug trafficker and all that is actually true about Juan Orlando Hernandez, and he travels freely in the U.S. He goes to Washington. They, like, treat him well. So Honduras right now is a pillar, uh, a, a base of U.S. imperialism, of drug trafficking for so many competing interests in the U.S. That's why it's so crucial for them to maintain Honduras under the boot of this right-wing military dictatorship. So in 2007, 2008, when Manuel Zelaya was trying to confront these drug traffickers, was giving land back to the Afro-Indigenous people in the North. You have the Garifuna people, the Afro-Honduran uh, community who have been there for hundreds of years, who are descendants of enslaved Africans, who are being kicked off of their lands by multinational tourism companies, by palm oil plantations. He gave land back to them. And also in the southwestern part of Honduras, you have the Lenca people where Berta Caceres is from. That land was being given back to them, protecting the environment. The nail in the coffin for Manuel Zelaya was joining ALBA in 2008, the Alianza Bolivariana para Nuestra América. At that point, the U.S. was like, yo, we got to get him out of here. Because at that point, Honduras was no longer at the behest of empire. They were Because Honduras' biggest trading partner has always been the U.S. as a, a neo-colony, especially bananas. That's Honduras was actually uh, historically the first banana republic, and that's where the term comes from, because the United Fruit Company set up all these banana plantations in Honduras in the 50s. And they also used that as a base of resistance, quote unquote, or a base of attack against 
Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in the 1956 coup that removed him. And interestingly enough, one of Che Guevara's most uh, famous quotes where he said, uh, quote, uh, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, I swear before a picture of Comrade Stalin that I will not rest until I cut the tentacles of these uh, capital imperialist octopuses. That was him in Honduras passing by United Fruit Company Plantation, where my mom is from in the north. That's actually where they were based in Puerto Cortes and Vela. So that whole area is all banana plantations, banana republic, and Honduras has always played that role. And as a, a platform of attack against Nicaragua, which has always been free and sovereign. So once Manuel Zelaya signed Alba, once he was cooperating with Daniel Ortega, once he was cooperating with Venezuela, with Ortega, talking about reuniting Latin America under socialism, that's when the U.S. really got scared. They obviously, this is under Obama, right? This is under Obama's administration. Hillary Clinton was the one who was really pushing for the coup. She has that, what is that book, Hard Decisions or whatever. She's yeah. a psychopath. You know, she talks about invading Honduras, showing, teaching them a lesson. And so they went in, they kidnapped him in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. They flew him in a helicopter to Costa Rica and they dropped him in the middle of the jungle. Like imagine right now, somebody goes to your house, 2 a.m. in your PJs, they take you on a helicopter, drop you in the middle of a jungle in Costa Rica. He went through Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, he was very well um, well, uh, re well received. He made it back to Honduras. So he's somebody who became radicalized. It's a very interesting story, right? Because he wasn't, he didn't come into president as somebody who was like a socialist or leftist, but he became a socialist through that process through seeing like, oh, okay, let me try. He went through that process of a liberal mindset of like, let's change from within, you know, let's reform the system. Uh, so that happened uh, ever since the coup in 2009 to the present, it's been what, over 11, 12 years. Honduras has been the most violent country in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world, for many years. You have a completely privatized system. When we talk about Marx and capital, right, as I'm, as I'm reading capital, Marx talks about the anarchy of production of capitalism. There is no order. Everything is production for production's sake for the valorization of capital. People do not benefit off of their own land. The land resources and labor of Honduras does not go to the people of Honduras. It goes to the shirt that I'm wearing on your back. You know, gilded shirts are made in Honduras. Switch, a lot of sweatshop clothing is made in Honduras. The bananas we eat, the coffee we drink. So it's not going to the, the people of the country. And Xiomara Castro, who was Mercelaya's wife, she is somebody who's very progressive. I would say more to the left and has always been more to the left than Mercelaya. She uh, ran for president in 2014 uh, and in 2013 and 2014, I can't remember the exactly, but in that period, she ran uh, as president. She undoubtedly got the majority of the votes, huge mobilizations for her. And they were like, nope, you didn't win. And nothing, there was not a peep from the OAS or anything. And again, now she's trying to run. Uh, she, you know, so it, it's kind of like, she's run several times. So now this time she's running on her own. And she's uh, also got the support of a very important journalist named uh, Milto Benitez, who's a, a communist in Honduras, and he supports Xiomara Castro as well. So it's interesting to see my prediction uh, for this upcoming election in, in Honduras is that there are going to be some huge protests because I think that 
they're going to, uh, once they deny her victory, I, I think she'll get a lot of the vote. People are so fed up with the national 12 years of right wing, evangelical, neoliberal, free market, you know, free trade zone nonsense has run or destroyed her country. That's why you see all these people in the migrant caravans going to the U.S. from Honduras. They're not coming from Nicaragua, right? They're coming from Honduras primarily and Haiti and then Guatemala. They're tired of that. They want socialism. They want order. They want public infrastructure. There's not even public like water systems. People, there's no public tra- uh, sanitation. So people in Honduras burn garbage in their homes because there's no central municipal authority that picks up garbage. There's no running water, right? That people have to buy Nestle Coca-Cola bottles of water that they can raise the price of at any point. So it's it's crazy. We're seeing the worst of capitalism, and I think that. Uh, I support Xiomara. I've supported her for many years. I hope she wins. And I would love to see an alliance between a socialist Honduras and a socialist Nicaragua. That's interesting. Um, uh, so you're saying that she was cheated one of the previous times that, that she ran. What were some of the tactics that were used there and how might they reappear this time around? Some of the tactics that were used in the 2013-2014 elections were going into polling sites, and this is this was done by the Honduran military itself, they would go into the working class socialist communities with machine guns and they would close it down early. And when people would protest, they would start firing out in the street at them. There were so, uh, so many accounts of also right-wing uh, mercenary groups. Because one of the things that is important to remember, uh, modern day warfare and violence in Latin America a lot of it is not just done by militaries and the police, but also by these private security firms that they call them. We know that it was a private security firm that was hired to kill Berta Cáceres, right? It was a private security firm that was hired to kill Margarita Murillo, who was another activist, communist activist in Honduras that I met. Uh, in 2012, she was murdered in 2014. And it's these private security firms, a lot of them based in Miami, a lot of them based in the U.S. And it's a collection of in the, and a lot of times, not even just from that nationality. It's like, it's, it's kind of like the way ISIS operates, where like in Syria, you would find these ISIS cells. And it wasn't, a lot of the times, they weren't even all Syrian. They were they were like Turkish, you know, Uzbek. Uh, they were from the Caucasus region of, of Russia. They were like Lebanese, all these random Wahhabis that they just assembled. And they would send, pay them and send them jobs. Go kill the, this person, go kill that person. Those are some of the tactics that were used. There was these mercenary groups that would go to polling stations. They would kidnap people. They would kill people. They would threaten people. That stuff goes on all the time. There's a, uh, a community in Triunfo de la Cruz in the coast, the Garifuna homeland, where they just straight up killed uh, four uh, comrades who were there, who were involved with the Garifuna resistance movement. They haven't been found. It's very likely that they were killed. And these mercenary groups are the ones that are responsible for a lot of the violence. And so in a way that kind of is allows the Honduran state to rebrand the violence, right? They're saying it's not, uh, it's not the state violence. It's these criminal groups, gangs, right? But who are these gangs? These gangs are run by the state. They're, they're being carried out. Their orders are carried out by the capitalists and the governments that run them. And so it's just like a, a middleman that they use. Same thing in Haiti. Same thing happened in Haiti. I don't know if y'all heard about, you know, the Jovenel Moise. Obviously, Jovenel Moise was not a friend of ours, right? He was right-wing, pro-U.S., but I guess he no longer served the interest of, of capital of Washington. 
And so a mercenary group was used to kill him. That's modern day warfare in Latin America and all over the world. So that's the, the private security firms are a huge part of that. And that also ties into the free market zones, what they call the CEDES in Honduras is a, a center for economic development that they called it. So what they're doing, and they're doing this in El Salvador as well with Bitcoin, is that they're creating like neo-feudal estates where one or two companies run an entire area and they have a private security firm that they hire that essentially act as police and carry out the orders of these neoliberal capitalists. So for example, you will have a free trade area in Honduras run by Thurululum, let's say as an example, and they'll have a private security firm from Miami and anybody who strikes, protests, organizes a union, they'll get rid of them like that. And when it comes out on the news, it was gang violence. It was, you know, somebody, it was a dispute. It wasn't state violence. And so that's sort of what's happening. It's some really, it's some really dark stuff. And it's something that, you know, for people who are listening to this in the States and they're like, oh, who cares, right? That's just whatever. That's coming here. That's that's going to happen here, by the way. And not only are the, the migrants who are coming from Honduras, from these countries, that, you know, they're coming to the U.S. as a result of those neoliberal imperialist policies, but they're being tested on them so that they can be imposed here. Yeah, I think that was something that was demonstrated with the uprisings of last summer, um, where it felt like a lot of the technology that we had seen being used on people over there, where it's easy to distance ourselves from, all of a sudden they're using drones on us, they're using chemical weapons on us. And it, it's really US foreign policy coming home um, and I think you're absolutely right that it's tested overseas, but it's not like we're immune. And um, we need to see that connection, even from people thousands of miles away. Um, it can happen here. They're fine having it happen here too, you know? So I think we need to pay attention to the movement on the ground in cases like this um, for how to handle it, what we do, how do we push back? Most definitely. Yeah, I like to say the state, you know, under capitalism is a tool of class suppression. So, you know, imperialism is the American or Western bourgeoisie going abroad and, and suppressing the masses elsewhere. But that's because the masses have risen up elsewhere. You know, the massive masses have risen up in in Nicaragua. So the empire has put their focus there. But as soon as we start to raise or, you know, as soon as the masses rise up in the U.S., you know, there's nothing stopping the state apparatus from uh suppressing us in a similar way um even though americans probably consider themselves immune so when you're talking here about honduras and nicaragua um it's obvious the the connection that different countries in south america and central america have in their struggle against imperialism um, battling against the same tactics and the same enemy and, and obviously the more socialist struggle and socialist governments that there are in latin america the more they can work together uh, to combat imperialism um, so could you uh, talk about the, the 2009 coup in, in Honduras um, and the sort of effect that there was in going from a more left-wing government or socialistic government to a neoliberal government um, and compare and contrast that to the neoliberal rollback in uh, uh, Nicaragua that happened from 1990 to 2006? The 2009 coup in Honduras rolled back a lot of the progressive gains that were made in Honduras under Celaya in a very short period of time because it wasn't until 2007 that 
Manuel Celaya really began implementing a lot of progressive reforms. One of the things that he wanted to change is the constitution of the country. The constitution is the bedrock of the political system of any nation. And the constitution of Honduras was written by people in the military dictatorship in 1982, who this coming years and years after dictatorship during the Cold War. And it doesn't benefit the majority of the people in the country, it does not provide rights for Afro-Indigenous peoples, for protection of the environment, for the working class. And what Manuel Celaya wanted to do is that he wanted to implement a process called La Cuarta Urna, which is the fourth ballot that would basically be uh, a referendum on whether we should even change the constitution. So in the lead up to that, what the right wing was saying, they were like, oh my God, like he's going to change the constitution, like Chavez and, and, and Castro, and he's going to like become a dictator and this and that and write himself in as president. And all he was saying is, look, let's have a referendum on if you want to change the constitution. And we can include uh, what, what they call back then the uh, Asamblea Constituyente, the popular constituent assembly that would include the broad sectors of society in rewriting the constitution. So that was the goal, right? The goal was to have the working class, the Afro-Honduran community, the indigenous community, the women, um, LGBTQ community, everybody to rewrite this constitution from scratch. And that's what Manuel Celaya wanted to do. So it's kind of the very early stages of what Nicaragua was able to do, right? Because Nicaragua, the constitution in the 80s, you read the, the constitution of Nicaragua in the 80s, it's, it's very anti-capitalist, very Marxist. It talks about human beings dominate, dominating society, uh, working for the uplifting of the working class. So Honduras, was, because it has gotten so much more under attention from the U.S. being under the boot of the empire, any little change like that is very, very hard to do in Honduras. So it's kind of like Mexico, right? Like, like imagine how much pressure AMLO is under to even do anything sort of progressive, right? Because Mexico, if the if Mexico falls to so, quote unquote falls to socialism and leaves the sphere of the U.S., the U.S. is fucked, you know. So this is something that within the context of Central America, the U.S. saw as well. So there was a huge slander campaign against Manuel Zelaya. They said that he was going to become a dictator. We had all these pro-democracy protests that were organized in Tegucigalpa in the capital. P petty bourgeois, wealthy kids from the private schools again. And there was a lot of, you know, while there, the, the base of the country was still fundamentally capitalist, he was still battling to implement uh, progressive reforms. There was, still wasn't like a dictatorship of the proletariat, the way we see that in, in Nicaragua or in Cuba or in Venezuela. He was moving toward that. He was trying to do that through the constitution very slowly. And even that, even that was resisted so hard by the elites, by Washington, by Micheletti, who ended up taking over. And so what happened is that, you know, he, they took him on the coup, as, as we mentioned in June of 2009, they replaced him with this right-wing guy called Roberto Micheletti, who's also in the same party, but very right-wing as hell, lives in Miami now. And he, oversaw these death squads that were used in the 80s uh, to train the Contras. Those death squads were now used to murder people. And thousands of people died. Thousands of people died in the aftermath of the coup. 
people were tortured, people were disappeared. And a lot of the people who were on the front lines of the resistance movement were LGBTQ people, were women, Afro-Indigenous communities, the popular sectors of society. And that's why in the aftermath of the coup, it was called the FNRP, the Frente Nacional de Resistencia Popular, the National Popular Resistance Front, modeled after the FMLN and the Sandinista Front, incorporating all these sectors of society to oppose the coup. And for years, many years, they resisted, they fought back against the, the right-wing national party. And it's crazy because it's also these documents that show that Israel financed and supported the right-wing national party government. They gave them spyware technology that allowed the national party to spy on activists, targeting them and killing them. The IDF has numerous military exercises with the Honduran military. Honduras and Guatemala are two of the Latin American countries that uh, are, are in that list of very few countries. You know how every year they, they do that vote of like who recognizes Palestine and who recognizes Israel? And usually it's like three versus a hundred and something like three in favor, three or four in favor of Israel. Well, like most of them, it's like uh, US, Israel, Guatemala and Honduras most of the time and Colombia, I think. So it's very few. So they have a very tight relationship to Israel. Right, Israel, and, and this is how the evangelical churches play a role as well, because the evangelical churches in the aftermath of the coup were attacking Catholic liberation theology churches, because Nicaragua is guided by liberation theology, socialist Catholicism that's progressive, that's anti-imperialist, that says we're against the money changers, the users, we want you know everybody to have, uh, to live off the land. It's a progressive interpretation of Christianity, the Christianity being imposed in Honduras is evangelical, right-wing, Zionist, very dark stuff that is backed by Israel. Everywhere you go in Honduras, you see the Israeli flag. And there's a huge cooperation between Israel and the Honduran government. So in the aftermath of the coup, uh, also Taiwan as well. Taiwan sells arms and training to the Honduran military government. Honduras is one of the few countries to recognize Taiwan and not the People's Republic of China, which is a whole other thing as well. So you have Taiwan, Israel, the U.S., you have all the, the heavy hitter. I think even Ukraine, fascist Ukraine, uh, after the, the Euromaidan as well. So all the, the forces of evil in the world supporting this right-wing National Party government and training death squads and murdering people. I knew Somebody, uh, Margarita Murillo, if you look her up, I, when, back when I used to write for Telesud, I wrote a piece about her. Uh, basically, in 2012, I went to Honduras, uh, to my mom's hometown, to the Caribbean coast, and I met uh, this compañera named Margarita Murillo. She was a Honduran communist. She was in the Honduran Communist Party in the 50s and 60s, earlier on. And she was somebody who has been, she, was in, she went to El Salvador to fight alongside the FMLN, she went to Nicaragua to fight alongside the Sandinistas. And during the 80s, she was saying, she was like, now it's our turn here in Honduras to do that. She was tortured for many years. She was kidnapped several times. She was a campesina. And she also was one of the people who first initiated the FNRP, one of the major leaders of the National Popular Resistance Front after the 2009 coup. And she said, look, I'm a communist. I think Mil Celaya is not a revolutionary by any means, but we have to work with what we can and push them more to the left. And that means something differently in the global South. It's not like Bernie Sanders or whatever, or, or uh, Kamala Harris or, or Joe Biden. Uh, it's very different, right? So in Honduras, she was a communist, an ML, who's working with this progressive liberal anti-imperialist government. 
And in 2012, after the coup, uh, she was murdered. She was murdered in cold blood uh, in, in the campo, um, tending to the field. She died with seeds in her hand. She was planting seeds. Like she was like going, going down her patch, planting seeds. She died with seeds in her hands. Her daughter, uh, Montserrat, who uh, I'm good friends with, she and also her brother, uh, Aaron, uh, and uh, sorry, not Aaron, um, uh, David, uh, they, they had to leave Honduras. So check this, the, I met them in 2012 in Honduras. We went to a Partido Libre meeting and an FNRP meeting. We were eating fish and planting at the beach. We were having a good time. It was Margarita, Montserrat, her brother. We were just talking politics and we were talking out. And the next time I hear from them, Margarita was murdered, right, by the death squads. And the next time I see Montserrat, uh, and her brother, they were wearing orange jumpsuits. They were in immigration court in New York because they had they had to flee Honduras through Mexico, take that whole journey. They made it to New York, to the Bronx. So I have, there's a lot of Hondurans in the Bronx now, and there's a big exile community there. And uh, immigration detained her. And basically, from I, the next time I saw her, she was in a jumpsuit. She was in an immigration court. So it just showed, I was able to see full circle, right? Like how imperialism functions, how in my home country, like these people who are not bad people, they're campesinos, they want to do good. They want to lift people out of poverty, how their mother was murdered and terrorized. And then how their kids were forced to flee. And now being undocumented in the U.S., now they have the undocumented experience there as communists in the belly, in the capital capitalism, in the place that sent the orders for their mom to be killed. So for me, I was able to see that full circle. And that's just one example. There are thousands of examples like this of people after the coup who were murdered. So there's so much blood that was shed after the coup. And that's why I'm hoping with this election, I would love to see a peaceful transition to socialism in Honduras. I, you know, I, I would not want to wish violence or, or misery or war, but I think that it's to the point where things will get so bad that People are fed up at election fraud after election fraud. I think that with this upcoming election, the violence can get pretty bad. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, this might be a little bit of a difficult question to answer because it's kind of subjective, but after the 2009 coup, would you say the the public, the uh, Honduran public as a whole, realized the right wing was full of shit? Because we're talking about, you know, the the connections between these countries. And obviously in, in Nicaragua, you have... Uh, the two separate revolutionary periods, you know, with the one neoliberal period in between. So obviously the masses, you know, uh, and there was great struggle involved with this, but eventually went back to socialism, realized the right wing wasn't bringing, you know, bringing them anything. And it, it reminds me to a smaller degree of when the right wing National Assembly elections in Venezuela in 2015, after oil prices crashed, um, the the opposition won and all they did was like not pay government workers their wages, tried to do multiple coups from within the parliament. And eventually people were like, OK, they're they're full of shit. You know, they're just trying to destabilize the country. Would you say that's at the point or that uh, Honduras is at the point where they're realizing these right wing governments are just, you know, U.S. puppets who are only looking out for their own interests? Yes, I would say that many people in Honduras both in Honduras and the diaspora recognize that Juan Orlando, the, the national party, the right-wing neoliberal system is horrible. However, I think that 
the political attitude is different in Nicaragua. And I'll say this honestly, I'm brutally honest and objective about politics. I think that in Nicaragua, people are more politically mature um, because they have confidence in El Frente Sandinista. The, the Sandinista front has always been there for the masses, right? They, for as long as people can remember since the 60s, fighting Somoza, they've been through everything. They've been through neoliberalism, they've been through the color revolutions, or they've been through everything. And somebody like Daniel Ortega has been there from the beginning. He literally was part of that original, he's the last living president head of state who came to power in a guerrilla movement. And I, people forget that, right? Because it's like, in within the anti-imperialist camp, like, you know, Venezuela, Maduro, mad props to Maduro, I love my boy Maduro, but he came in, in through the election process in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, part of the new wave, right? The, the communist youth, again, mad props to Diaz-Canel. Uh, but the experience that Daniel has as a guerrilla fighter from the 60s, he met with Kim Il-sung. He met with Fidel. He met with Thomas Sankara. He he was around when you know the Soviet Union was like the the bastion of resistance to to fascism. So he's seen everything. Like he's he's a living legend who has seen everything, and he understands strategy very well. And that's why people love Daniel. They love the president. They love the Frente because it has always been there throughout time to guide the people in the correct way. Like okay, let's do this. Let's not do that. Honduras hasn't had that. You know, uh, the, in the 80s, all of the guerrilla movements in Honduras that took place were very quickly wiped out. Um, they were very, they were, they were some of the most brutal acts committed against a Honduran communists during the 80s for that reason that they didn't want to see what was happening in El Salvador and Nicaragua play out in Honduras. Um, the, the Communist Party of Honduras uh, is not as strong, you know, um, and Partido Libre is relatively new. It happened after the, the coup. Uh, it doesn't have the same level of political experience of class consciousness to be able to not just critique the right-wing neo, uh, neoliberal government, but also to talk about like, this is socialism. This is what, what this is a new economic model. Let's collaborate with Russia and China. And I think part of that has been the leadership a lot of the leadership, and again, I say this as somebody who supports Libra, supports the FNRP, um, but I think because people have tried to allow more liberal elements to dominate the space of like, you know, let's work within the system, let's do this, um, there's less class consciousness of socialism and Marxism. And so that, that you know, that is a real problem. Whereas like Daniel, he talks about Marxism and, and, and socialism all the time. He, he knows how to educate the man the people you go to nicaragua man you talk to people every every person you meet like they know about they know about marx they know about lenin they know about all this stuff um in honduras there's still a lot of poverty there's still a lot of unfortunately people are still kind of ignorant about um politics in general and that's not their fault it's because of capitalism it's because of systemic oppression that has plagued the country you know a lot of my family i talked to them, a lot of my family and they're like you know, the, we love the U.S. And, and it, I always ask this too, right? Because I'm like, if there's so many people leaving Honduras, why aren't they going to Nicaragua? But because propaganda, all the telecommunications in Honduras is owned by Western companies, by the U.S., by, you know, so they, they're not putting out pro-socialist messages. It's very right wing. And 
I think the left in Honduras is not as politically mature as the left in Nicaragua or even in El Salvador. So I would say while while there is a general recognition, like people are like, man, fuck this guy, Juan Orlando, he sucks, like this country. Uh, I think there there's also still some level of pessimism uh, and cynicism of the left, right? We'll say like, you know, oh, but all politicians are bad. Everybody's bad. And, and, and this is interesting because it ties into a message that the National Endowment for Democracy supported a group after the coup in Honduras. The, the National Endowment for Democracy supported a group in Honduras called PAC, Partido Anticorrupción, the Anti-Corruption Party. And so what they did is that they, they said, we're not left or right. We're against corruption. We don't take political side. We're just against corruption. And that's very smart on the part of the NED because they're like, look, if we don't put this sort of fifth column in there to control, to get that energy, they're all going to move left. They're all going to become socialists and communists. So we need to put in something there that's like a control mechanism to be like, we're not left or right. We're against, we're bottom up. We're against all politicians. Classic, you know, color revolution style strategy. And that has worked very efficiently in Honduras where you have these random politicians or groups that have sprung up or like, I'm not red or blue, you know, I'm, I have no color, I'm, I'm neutral, I'm just against the corrupts, the elites. Well, it's like, who the fuck do you think the corrupts and elites are? They're capitalists, right? And so that's been a big challenge. And, and I say that to be straight up, you know, I say that um, these are discussions I have all the time within my own community. I've been very active in the Honduran uh, revolutionary community for many years. Um, so it's challenging, but it's something that myself, others are, are trying to work on. It almost seems like uh, the same postmodernist logic that dominates radical academia in the West. Um, and I, I think we even see it. Uh, I, I know you just did a recently a, a segment on uh, Squid Games. Yeah. Uh, is it Squid Games? Am I getting it right? Yeah. I, I watched it. I don't even remember. But um, one of the things that I noticed in that, and uh, it was brought to light by a South Korean comrade, was that uh, it follows this logic of this postmodern uh, pessimism that accepts capitalist yeah. realism. And uh, I, I've seen people focus mostly on the critical part of it. Like, yes, you know, it's a, it's, it's a show that's critical of capitalism, critical of the way that debt is used to basically uh, produce this modern form of debt slavery. But there is no affirmative side. It's just a pure empty negation um, and that seems to be something quite similar to what's going on in Honduras with the mentioning of the left, which is just this vague, you know, we just reject everything. We don't want to accept any ideology. We don't want to accept, we don't want to wear any color on, on our shirt. So um, would you make a connection there between what's going on, the phenomena that's going on between the pseudo activism uh, or the pseudo radicalism in the uh, Western Academy and how it's being expro ex exported into uh, these places of resistance, but that are still under the stranglehold of imperialism. 100%, man. I mean, you nailed it right on the head. It's some, it's pessimism. It's, it, it's like post-capitalist pessimism where people admit, right? You can't look at what's going on with capitalism and neoliberalism and say, oh, it's great, it's perfect. You, people admit, and it's something very similar in South Korea or occupied Korea, as I like to call it, where with the Squid Game stuff, like you're allowed to criticize capitalism and neoliberalism in, in in occupied Korea, as long as you include a punch or two out of the DPRK, right? You can't get away with just critiquing occupied Korea. You have to throw a hit at DPRK because the second 
you point out pointing out everybody can point out problems right and that's always kind of been my um sort of ideological rift or tensions with some of my anarchist friends where we're great we come up when we talk about problems and the state and like violence yo 100 percent we're 100 percent. we agree we want this but then when i'm like oh i support daniel i support maduro i support they're like how can you like they see it as like embarrassing almost right and and this part of this postmodern pessimism like you say like that it's okay to critique everything it's okay to be against everything but the second you're defending something oh you're brainwashed you're you're cultish you're simple-minded and it comes from this kind of like western academia mindset where it's okay to criticize everything and this is where the history of like the frankfurt school Look at the Frankfurt School. What is it? Uh, Horkheimer and Marcuse and all these dudes. Like, they were great at critiquing capitalism and like the the, the atomized man and this. Do you support the Soviet Union? Hell no. Then what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know. And so it's it's part of the exhaust pipe. I call it like the exhaust pipe of capitalism, where you have to you you have to allow some sort of criticism to come out to flow out. Otherwise, it's just gonna blow up. But as long as you're not promoting a, a, a anti-imperialist revolutionary direction, then that's going too far, right? Then that's too extreme, you're brainwashed. And, and that sort of culture has been created. And it's part of the hybrid war that goes on against the youth in particular. So for example, in Latin America, especially in Latin America, the Caribbean, like youth in Nicaragua, they'll have shirts of Daniel Ortega, posters of Daniel, of Sandino, they're like, yo, I love my president. I love our revolutionary heroes. You go to Honduras and people will have posters and images of some reggaeton artist or some musician or whatever. And, and, and I say this as a Honduran because it just shows the difference politically between socialism in Nicaragua that's optimistic, that says it's okay to, to support somebody, to stand behind somebody, whether they're right or wrong, right? And I think, and, and in Honduras, it's kind of like, you know, just support anybody who's popular and mainstream. And I think within the left, especially within the, the Western left, we've lost that element of being able to be like, I may not agree 100% with this person uh, on XYZ, but I, I got their back. There's so many people like that. I have a lot of friends like that. You know, I won't say who, but I have a lot of good friends who, like, I don't agree with everything they say but I have their back. If they need help, like I support, I support what they do. Like I got their back, you know? And I think that level of political understanding is very, is very much missing where it's kind of trendy. It's trendy to be against everything, but not to be for something. Yeah. I think um, the scholar, I think her name is Jody Dean, um, had a book called Comrade. And I think her useful of com uh, use or term of comradeship is a useful one because it's sort of about, uh, even if you may not agree with everything, you share a common vision of the future and you can work together and have their back. I think she may even use that term um, and then later down the line hash out the you know specific small things you have and I think that's a useful way to coalition build without purity politics um which I think can hamstring um nobody's perfect or even close uh you just work with the allies you have um and hopefully we can start developing that more and it gets away from the 
who's more perfect and more radical, but without making any actual proposals, right? Because that's the other thing with um, Squid Game is that you're allowed to make anti-capitalist criticism, but you're not, there's no proposed solution in it. So you just end up feeling, well, I recognize parts of my life in that, isn't that sad? And that's it, right? You can be frustrated, but there's no alternative glimpsed. And I think that's the kind of safe anti-capitalist rhetoric that we see a lot. And it's right, it's sort of cathartic and it disperses maybe more revolutionary tendencies. Um, and the acting wasn't good, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a pertinent question for activists going forward. How do it's you work? Possible. Oh, go ahead. We're, we're also framing it in terms of like political maturity, which I, I think mm -hmm. is the right way to frame it, but it's also like personal maturity. How can you build relationships and friendships with people who, um, who are not going to have the same view as you on, on pretty much everything? And how are you supposed to, as a communist, get to the masses and organize the masses if this is your a priori structure of interaction? Mm -hmm. People need to agree with me perfectly on everything. If not, I am not talking to them. I'm excluding mm -hmm. them. That's horrific, you know? We're supposed to be able to lift people up. And it also comes from a place of, of, of arrogance, I think, because once you have encountered transformation yourself, you realize that there's potential for transformation in others. So if you have people who you disagree with on things that you might even consider fundamental, um, you don't cancel them because you know that they're changeable because you have experienced change yourself. Um, so it's it's almost like a, a deeper, like. Uh, human human level of, of interaction and i don't think we can disconnect it from the effects that that capitalism and the capitalist logic has had in um cultivating us in a way in which we're not really good at making relations with with other people that we're alienated we're separated there's this crisis this radical separation uh in in in, in everyday human beings lives it reminds me of oh sorry uh -huh. oh i'm sorry Romeo. you go ahead I just want to make a quick point on that because I think that's a, a, a great point and connected to, um, in, in particular, the mindset with Nicaragua. Daniel Ortega is somebody who's like that because Daniel Ortega, there was three factions in the Sandinista front. There was the, the, the prolonged people's war front, which was more of the Maoist China aligned camp of the Sandinista front. Again, we're talking about the Sino-Soviet split, Soviet Union and China. Some people were pro-Soviet, some people were pro-China. So you had the prolonged people's war faction of the Sandinista front that were more, I would consider a little bit more ultra. They were like, let's stay in the countryside only. Let's only um, engage in guerrilla warfare, no education programs or anything like that. There was the more uh, revisionist or liberal kind of like, let's work with the opposition. Let's not overthrow Somoza. Let's you know only do electoral politics uh, and also tended to be a little bit more on the religious side. Daniel Ortega was the third uh, tercerista that they called him, the third camp within that, that blended the two. He's like, we need everybody to work together. And he's somebody who within both sides would take heat. He, he would get heat from the prolonged uh, peoples who were uh, faction of the Sandinista front who were like, you're a revisionist, you're not radical enough, you know, you're not doing this. But then the other part that were more kind of liberal reformists, they were like, you're too extreme. Like, Look at who you're working with, these crazy communists. And he was able to manage this and maintain unity, which is, I think, the brilliance of him as a communist leader. 
much like Mao did as well in building new democracy in China, much like Fidel did. And that's really what it comes down to, uh, like Compañero Carlos was mentioning, is like when you, it's not just political maturity, it's personal maturity and like going through so much crap in your life that you recognize that like in order, when you're in an emergency crisis, which is capitalism, capitalism is an emergency crisis. We are in an emergency now. We don't have time to be like, oh, you like that? Oh, I'm not talking to you. Like, oh, you like that? I'm not like, we, we need to figure this out and come together. It's like if you're on a plane and the plane's about to crash, the pilot, you know, passed out. You need to assemble a crew of people on the plane to figure out how the hell are we gonna land this thing and avoid the turbulence and avoid crashing. We'll figure out whatever disagreements we have later on. Let's figure out landing this plane and getting everybody safe. So I think that's the approach, the right approach that, that I think is connected to uh, Comandante Daniel Ortega. Yeah, and I drew a connection there between uh, Kala, your idea of comradeship and, and developing that ability to compromise and ability to work with people. Um, and Carlos, you're talking about how that's a bit of a, a personal development and it just you know, makes me think of Lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder, especially with Ramiro talking about how Honduran's uh, um, movement is less uh, developed, less matured. Um, you know, that takes time that, that uh, you know, happens within the struggle. And Che Guevara also believed in this idea that revolutionaries are formed in the struggle. So engaging in class struggle, you know, is what opens you up to transformation and, and political transformation and helps you learn about um, whatever country you're struggling in and the people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask, because we, we, we saw something, I think we, we've seen it in, in China and, and we saw it in the USSR, but specifically in Latin America, we saw it in Cuba, which you had this long period of um, a socialist revolution that, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that it was wholly tied to Fidel. You know, Fidel never allowed any statues to go up uh, after him or anything like that. So he, he really wanted to reject uh, more of what, you know, what's generally called the cult of personality um, approach. But um, one of the things that Cuba is really successful in is uh, in transferring into this new generation of leadership without creating necessarily an atmosphere of what the, the sociologist Emil Durkheim called anomie. You know, this state of you had this regular order and now it has been destroyed. They were able to continue the revolutionary process under new leadership while maintaining the the ideas that you know that 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 were birthed in the Cuban Revolution, um, you're mentioning uh, uh, the deep relationship that people have to Ortega in Nicaragua, and it reminds me of the relationship that Cubans have to Fidel. Um, do you think he's laying the grounds uh, for when in a in a decade or so, when uh, an election comes that he's probably too old to run in, so that there could be uh, um, a continuation of the revolution, even if Ortega is is not there. Most definitely, he Daniel Ortega is somebody who understands the importance of the youth. And actually, one of the really brilliant things about Sandinismo in Nicaragua is the emphasis on the Sandinista youth movement. A lot of the quote unquote bots who were censored by Meta and Facebook, Twitter, and all that, most of them are young people. Most of them are in the twenties. Most of them are people from working class communities who are able to survive and create content. Like imagine if we lived, imagine if there was a socialist government here 
and they were like, yo, you have your channel, Midwestern Marks, like the, the socialist government, we're going to subsidize you so you can do this even more. Like, that's how it is. That's basically what they did, the Sandinista government. Like, they went to already existing socialist communist projects and were like, we're going to invest in you, not to control what you do, but to so you can keep doing that. So you could have that space that's independent and to counterweight mainstream corporate media in Nicaragua. And that's a big part of the work in Nicaragua. The overwhelming majority of revolutionary journalists, social media people, YouTubers from Nicaragua are young people, very young. And they're creating a whole new generation of Sandinista youth that are leading the forefront. I met with them when me and my girlfriend, Ophelia, went for the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution in July uh, 19th. It was awesome, man. We were just chilling with people our age, like going out. Like we went to this one park called Parque Palestina, a Palestine park. And it was all young people, all young people running the event, the music, playing Sandinista music. They had like tournaments, events, prizes, um, and the youth were involved. They were creating new versions of the old revolutionary songs. Then afterward, we went to this really dope restaurant called Bandolero, which is like named after Sandino. It's like a socialist themed restaurant where they have like Sandino's hat and like they have live performances. All They had like live music and you eat there. All the performances, again, young people, locally raised communist Sandinista musicians who produce revolutionary music. Some of it are remakes of the old revolutionary songs adapted to new times. Some of it are completely new songs. So they're they're creating that whole new generation. I saw them with my son. I met with them. I still talk to them. Uh, and it was dope. Like, it, I think the cool thing about it is that, like, even if you go to Nicaragua now, if you go to, there's just one street. Uh, there's Rotunda Hugo Chavez. There's, like, that big Hugo Chavez statue. And it leads down to the lake, uh, Managua. That whole street is all, like, Sandinista businesses, like Sandinista restaurants. There's, like, um, Tierra de Casa de Maíz, which is like an indigenous socialist, like themed, everything is corn and it's like pro Sandinista. There's like Bandolero, which I told you about, where they have live music. It's all young entrepreneurs, socialist entrepreneurs. And that sounds crazy to us here, right? But they're working in conjunction with lifting the economy in a socialist constructive process. And they're part of that model. And it's all young people who are like throwing events, who are running coffee shops, don't like it's fucking it's cool as hell, you know, and and it's something that I wish we could have here. Um, and they're doing it. They're doing it. You know, they're they have their own TV networks. They have their own uh, restaurants, businesses where they have these huge events. And so that new generation, although we don't necessarily see it like from here, there is a whole new generation of something coming up the ranks. And there's so many people who are ready to fulfill and carry on that legacy. Um, I just think that one thing that Daniel is very uh, not I don't want to say weary but he's very careful because there was a lot of people who call themselves Sandinistas uh, especially a lot of academics right from the 80s who were like yo I'm this even that film like that shitty film La Sandinistas which weaponizes feminism against Nicaragua and Sandinismo and it's some bourgeois feminist academic who's no longer supported the government and gets color revolution money and all this stuff you know, there, there's been a lot of traitors. There's been a lot of traitors. Um, Margaret Randall, Susan Mesales, all these people who, who like in the 80s were radicalized by this revolution. They are now like anti-Daniel, but they're like on this bullshit of, oh, I'm pro-Sandinista, but I'm against Daniel, you know? And it's, you can't, 
it's like being pro Chavista but anti Maduro. It, that doesn't make sense, right? So there's been a lot of traitors, and I think it's something that Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo are very they they're very careful about who they bring into the the, the inner circle, and rightfully so, because there's been a lot of traitors who have you know they'll say this and then and then they'll start working with the USAID or the NED. Um, so I think there's definitely is a new generation of Sandinista youth. Um, and I think when the time comes, we'll, we'll know who they are. And I, I think you do a phenomenal job in, in showing that there is in your videos and your interviews. I watch them with my wife and I literally get chills from how politically conscious the uh, pueblo is. You know, it's uh, um, I definitely recommend everyone to check those out. We'll link them to the descriptions. Um, you know, Fidel once said that Latin America has a baby in its womb and that it might be born in a campo, it might be born in a hospital, but it will be born. And that baby is revolution. Um, so as today, we are in a historic moment uh, with the potential or potential very likely re-election of the Sandinista uh, government and uh, a, another potential uh, turn towards socialism in Honduras. Um, how do you see these two developments with uh, what's happening in general in Latin America and this, uh, what, what some, what we have called uh, along with you and, and many other uh, anti-imperialist creators, you know, the return of, a, of some sort of pink wave that uh, it doesn't seem to be as pink. It's a, lo a little bit more red now. Um, so um, how would you make the connections of Honduras and Nicaragua with uh, the Padre Arande in general? I think just as you mentioned, and I thanks again for, we did a stream a few months back and we called it just that from pink tide to red wave. And I think that's what we're seeing in Nuestra America today, where we have the process of radicalization all over the continent, where we went through that stage. It's kind of like a kid playing with fire, where it's like, at first, as they're growing up, they, they see the fire, they touch the flame, they think they could handle it with their hands, but then they like get burned, so they pull back. And that's kind of like we pulled back for a little bit. And now that we understand how fire works, we can begin to taper it, to play with it, to manipulate it, to serve our needs as, as a human being once we're older. And I think that in term, that's kind of the, the way that we can think about bourgeois democracy or working, trying to find a middle ground between the capitalist and the proletarian, something that Marx talks about in Capital, I mean, it, as I'm rereading Capital, I'm thinking about the elections, there's so many parallels that the contradiction between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is inherent, it's built in, and it will rupture no matter what. It's scientific. It's not like a, I hope it does. It will. There comes, <clears throat> in term, mathematically, in terms of capitalism, the way it works, it will come to that rupture. And I think we're seeing that rupture beginning where we have in after the 90s, right? Because in the 70s and the 80s in Latin America, you had revolutionary movements all over the hemisphere. You had guerrilla movements in Guatemala, in El Salvador, in Honduras, Nicaragua, in Colombia, Peru, Chile, Venezuela, Argentina, Cuba was liberated already, uh, Brazil, everywhere, everywhere, Uruguay, everywhere, there was guerrilla movements all over. What happened is that in the 90s, after the deconstruction of the Soviet Union. I don't like to say the collapse because it was overthrown uh, by a capitalist coup. After the, the purposeful deconstruction of the Soviet Union, you had the reign of liberalism, of capitalism, as, uh, as uh, what's this guy's name? Um, 
the guy called uh, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama. And he, yeah, he, he was like, you know, liberalism has won full house, right? The sitcoms, everybody's like chill. Everybody has capitalism won. Well, guess what? That honeymoon, that honeymoon is over. I was born in 1991. I've seen that fall. I've seen the, the, the aftermath of that. You know, we have the 90s and the early 2000s. You had some temporary success under capitalism that was, I don't even want to call it success because it was all artificial. And now in, into the 2010s, 2020s, capitalism is collapsing, inflation, more people are in poverty because of capitalism. And I think the pink tide, like we have to remember, right? It's coming from just 10 years after the collapse, the deconstruction of the Soviet Union. So a lot of people were weary of being connected to the ML left, of being a communist. They were like, you know, again, going back to what we we're talking about with postmodern pessimism, where it's like, we can recognize that capitalism is bad. Everybody can see that. But it's like, am I a communist? Nah, 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 I'm not that. You know, I don't want to be tied to that. Because don't you know, communism fell in 1989 and 1990 in the Soviet Union. So we're kind of past that stage now. We're kind of past, we're in an era where like at, in the pink tide, right? We see people try to negotiate with the opposition. People try to do things re through reform. For example, in Ecuador, me and my girlfriend used to live in Ecuador uh, in 2017. We moved there when Rafael Correa was president, great president. He was one of my favorite uh, Latin American leaders. You know, politically, I would say I'm more to the left of him, but nonetheless, he, he was a great president. Uh, and I was honored to, to actually see him in person in, in Ecuador. Um, he was somebody who was of that mentality. You know, let's work with the opposition. Let's still um, include them in the economy. Let's not nationalize too many things. Let's, you know, social democracy, right? And, and what happened once Lenin Moreno came in, same party, by the way, mind you, right? Same party, a neoliberal puppet of the U.S., Within months, literally, within months, everything got rolled back. I saw that. We, we saw that happen. And that we moved after that happened. Everything got privatized. Crime went up. Poverty went up. Everything that can be built in 10 years under social democracy can be reversed in 10 weeks in a neoliberal paquetazo, and as we saw in, in Ecuador. So what was the lesson from that? The lesson from that is if you don't get rid of this mold, this disease that is neoliberalism or capitalism in the country, it's going to grow, it's going to fester, and it's going to continue to grow. And that's why I think Cuba has been so successful at maintaining its revolution, because early on, they were like, nope, y'all got to get the fuck out of here. We're building socialism. And, and that's that, you know, and so I think that's been the lesson in after the pink wave. It's like, we have to continue the revolution. We have to continue to nationalize. Nicaragua is doing that. They just nationalized the largest electrical industry in the country recently. Uh, so now electricity is extremely low cost, 99% electrified country. And I think we're in that stage now where people are realizing across the hemisphere, not only do the anti, not only are the anti-imperialist countries moving more to the left, I think a great example is Bolivia, especially after the coup that happened in 2019, Bolivia's moving more to the left, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, but also countries that are fighting for socialism, they're recognizing that this whole thing of trying to dialogue with the enemy and let's just, you know, make appear, we're not going to use socialism and let's taper down this language. No, people want to hear socialism. People want that revolutionary message. We're in that era now, you know, and, and I think that's really the lesson here. 
Yeah, I like what you said about reading capital and in the, the way that the contradiction between the the proletariat and the bourgeoisie is scientific, you know, and and you see in that, you know, the critique of capitalism in capital is so thorough. You see how unnatural, how anarchic and how unstable capitalism is. And you also see how young it is, you know, comparatively uh, to other modes of production. And then when you look at all the resistance to capitalism that's risen up, you know, it almost makes that argument by Fukuyama seem completely ridiculous. Like, what do you mean we're at the end of history? Look at what's going on in Latin America. You know, look at the the pink tide, which you say is now turning into a red wave. Like, look at all these resistances to capitalism. Like, because, you know, the Soviet Union was just the beginning. That was just proof that, you know, workers and peasants could take over a state and run a country. Um, which they did so very successfully for a long time, you know, but that, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, does not represent the end of socialism by any means, you know, socialism will arise as all modes of production do with, you know, birthmarks of the past mode of production and over time, over a process of development. Well, definitely, yeah. Well, compañero Ramiro, thank you so much for your time, brother. We always love having you on. Uh, it's almost as if you're the an incarnation of Mao because the imagery you use to help us understand some of the uh, phenomena that you're describing is just absolutely extraordinary. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, good luck to the, the Sandinistas today in their uh, light, very likely victory. And um, that I've, for those listening on the left, uh, uh, keep up with Honduras. We seem to forget Honduras and some of these Central American countries uh, countries keep up with Honduras and keep on uh, countering imperialist propaganda against Nicaragua which is, is is very common on the left and it really shouldn't be because they're doing extraordinary things so uh, thank you so much for coming on thank you comrades and keep up the great work I love the channel you guys are dispelling a lot of imperialist propaganda and again right it's not trendy to oppose imperialism but somebody has to do it I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing it thank you Thank you, Ramiro. We're uh, we're grateful for you as well, and and for people looking for ways to counter those myths and and to follow Honduras and Nicaragua. Please check out uh, Ramiro's YouTube account. Um, it has been an incredible resource uh, for all of us at Midwestern Marks. So, we'll link it to the description, by the way.